3. Uh, once again, we're going to be doing an entire chapter, so brace yourselves. And we are going to move, um, try to move through this in a timely fashion. Well, in his commentary on the Roman Civil War, Julius Caesar remarks that experience is the best teacher. Uh, there's a lot of truth to that statement. Uh, you can gain a lot of knowledge in many ways, but true understanding really has to be forged in the fire of experience. I could study physics. I could study uh, the theory of tightrope walking extensively. I could be a written expert. But I can't know what it's like to walk on a tightrope until I actually step out on the wire. Well, the glory of God and the knowledge of God cannot be reduced to mere theory or mere just doctrine. Being able to account for God's attributes doesn't mean that we necessarily know God. God is to be known and he is to be experienced. God is not a, just an academic exercise. When the Bible talks about knowing God, it always includes a relational aspect. And we see this emphasized in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 33 through 34, where God says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. He says, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And notice in that verse how how God's promise this covenant he speaks of weaves together two core ideas that there's a real relationship between God and his people and that that relation and that out of that relationship flows a real knowledge of who he is knowing God in this way is the highest calling of man in Philippians chapter 3 verses 8 through 11 Paul declares that the glory of knowing God is better than anything he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. This is how Paul could endure suffering and remain content. He says, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which, which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Well, the reason Paul treasured the knowledge of Jesus Christ above everything that this world has to offer is because it is through this knowledge and the experience of God's power that we receive the promise of eternal life. As John writes in 1 John chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, he says, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. So God, our Savior, desires that all people would be saved and would come to the knowledge of the truth. We, we see that in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verse 4. He delights in perfecting the faith of his people 
by making the knowledge of his glory known in his great acts of power. And that's what brings us to consider this chapter, uh, Joshua chapter 3 this morning. If you could reduce the book of Joshua down to one sentence, I think it would be simply something like this. God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. In our time so far in Joshua, God has continually emphasized that he is the one who is keeping his promises that he, that he had made to Israel and to their fathers. It's in Joshua chapter 3 that we actually see those promises being kept. And from this moment on, every word in this book is an account of how God fulfilled his word in a powerful way. And I do not think we can overemphasize, really, the significance of this chapter for the history of God's people and the story of how God has brought redemption for you and for me. Now, Joshua 3 explains to us how God acted in a mighty way to bring Israel into the promised land. But it also has a, in a, in a, it has a greater role to play in the sense that it draws our attention to God's purpose of making his glory known in all the earth. And so my goal this morning is to draw your attention to how God went about making his glory known to his people as he brought them to the land of rest. And I want to show you how this great act of God's power, this wonder, looks forward to the greater deliverance that God has accomplished through the work of Christ Jesus. So let's begin by reading our passage. If you would, one more time, uh, stand for the reading of God's word. I'll be reading the entire chapter. Joshua chapter 3. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length, which is about 1,000 yards. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, When you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you will know. You shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, each from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of, Jordan, of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down 
from above shall stand in one heap. So, when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests, bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan, and those flowing down from the sea of the Arabah, the, the salt sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on the dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on the dry ground until the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Thank you. Please be seated. Well, the knowledge of God and the redeeming work of Jesus Christ are intimately woven together. In Joshua 3, the Israelites experienced the power and the deliverance of God in a, a most wonderful way, which, as we will see, typifies the way that God has redeemed his people through the work of Jesus. So in our time this morning, I want to focus on three things that the Israelites came to know as they experienced God's power while he led them over into the promised land. And then as we do, as we look at each of these three points, I want to show you the significance of what they came to know through their experience for what we ourselves have come to experience in Jesus. So three things the Israelites came to know about God. They came first to a knowledge of God's holiness. They came to a knowledge of God's holiness. Second, they came to a knowledge of God's presence. They came to a knowledge of God's presence. And thirdly, they came to a knowledge of God's deliverance. They came to a knowledge of God's deliverance. We want to first begin with God's holiness and how the Israelites came to know God and his holiness through this great event. Uh, God's holiness is really the, 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 the cornerstone that holds our other two points. Uh, this is the, the seed from which we see God's, the, the, the reason why God's presence is comforting and also the reason why uh, we can rejoice in God's deliverance. We left off last week uh, with the story of Rahab, the prostitute and her faith, uh, and then also the report of the two spies that she saved who Joshua had sent in to go and scout out the land. We saw how God delivered those spies from the king's men who were looking for them. And we also saw how God delivered Rahab and her family from being destroyed along with the rest of Jericho, specifically because she had faith and she sought God for mercy. Well, the day after the spies had returned from their mission, we see that Joshua and the people uh, rose early in the morning. He and the rest of the camp moved from their space uh, to the, uh, out of the land of Shittim and headed west until they came to the banks of the Jordan River. According to verse 2, they stayed there for three days. And then at the end of those three days, the officers uh, of the camp at Joshua's command went through the camp with certain instructions for the people for how they were to proceed as they went to enter Canaan. Um, these officers gave the people two direct commands. First, they told the people that they must look for the Ark of the Covenant as it was carried forward by the Levitical priest. And they're they told that once they see the Ark of the Covenant going forward, they are to leave their place in the camp and they are to follow it. 
Now, just in case, uh, if you're not familiar with what the Ark of the Covenant is, the Ark of the Covenant really was the most sacred part of the tabernacle. Uh, the, the ark itself was a wooden box that had been overlaid with gold. It had rings on the sides so that poles could be passed through it and it could be carried without being touched. And then at the top of the ark sat a piece called the mercy seat. The mercy seat was in- extremely important. Uh, it, was, it was ornate. It had two cherubim set up on its ends. They were facing one another with their, with their wings outstretched and overshadowing the center. The ark and the mercy seat were the most sacred items that were devoted to the worship of God because it can, the, the ark itself contained the two stone tablets of the law that God had given to Moses on Mount Sinai. It also contained Aaron's budded staff, which had uh, played a part in, in God showing that Aaron was in fact his appointed priest. And then it also contained a jar of manna that was dedicated to remembering the way that the Lord had provided for the people as they were coming out of the wilderness. The mercy seat was important. And the reason it was so important is because when the ark was placed in the tabernacle, the, the tent of worship, God would speak to Moses from the mercy seat. The mercy seat was where God made his direct presence dwell in a special way in the midst of the tabernacle. So the the glory of the tabernacle emanated from God as he spoke above the mercy seat. And so for this reason, the Ark of the Covenant was more than just a sacred reminder of God's holy law, of the, the order of the priesthood who interceded for the people, or a reminder just of how God had preserved his people as they were coming out of slavery. The Ark itself was, was a representative of the very presence of God. And so it has a special place to play in Israel's worship. Now we're told that when, 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 um, when the people were about to leave, that that the officers told the people to look for this uh, ark. And so when God sends the ark of the covenant before the people uh, as they enter the promised land, he's making an important point to them. He's communicating something to them. While God had appointed Joshua to lead in the place of Moses by sending the the ark of the covenant forward in the sight of everyone, the message that God was sending was that he was the one, that God was the one who was leading the people into this land to take this inheritance. God is the one going before the people to lead them in to this place of rest. So with that in mind, there's a couple things to notice about Uh, in particular, about the instructions that these officers give to the people in the camp. Uh, When the officers of the people go through the camp, they warn the people to keep a distance between themselves and the ark. They tell them not to come within 2,000 cubits, which works out to be about 1,000 yards. The reason that the officers told the people to do this was twofold. First, uh, none of the people besides the two spies and Joshua and Caleb had ever been to the land. So this is, this is a place that was completely foreign to them, completely new. They don't know where they're going. And when an entire nation is walking together, they all need to be able to see where they're going. And so there's a practical reason that the ark, who is leading the people into the promised land, is so far ahead so that the whole nation can see where they're going. But the second reason, and probably one of the more uh, sacred parts of this, is that I think the people are warned to keep a distance from the ark, specifically because this was a physical sign of God's holy presence. So the ark was, in fact, a threat to the people. 
the ark was dedicated as holy unto the Lord. It was a marker of God's very holy presence. And God takes his holiness seriously. God's holiness is lethal to sin and to sinners. Uzzah, one of King David's men, you may recall, who was involved in David's first attempt to bring the ark into Jerusalem, had been struck down because he reached out and touched the ark because the oxen who were pulling the cart they had placed the ark on stumbled and and the ark became steady and it looked as if it may fall and Uzzah reached out and touched it and God struck him dead on the spot. It would have been better for the ark to have touched dirt than the hand of a sinner. God takes his holiness seriously. And so I think this warning that's given here is a warning to the people, uh, not just so they won't lose their way, but also so that they will respect and see the holiness of God. Uh, You may recall that when the people of Israel first came out of Egypt, God had called them to the foot of Mount Sinai, and he showed them his glory there. And they were terrified. They were so terrified that they begged Moses to go and intercede for them because they didn't could not stand to look at the holiness of God. The holiness of God is a serious thing. It lays sin and its hideousness bare. God's holiness is the reason why his anger burns against wickedness and unrighteousness. So the people are told to be careful not to go too close to the ark. Uh, Whenever the ark was kept in the tabernacle, there were a series of layers of protection that kept the people from being consumed by God's holiness. And now that they're on the road and they can see the ark uh, before them, they need to be careful. If they do not walk in the fear of God and uh, have reverence for him, they're most assuredly going to run into a disaster and judgment. The weight of God's glory and his holiness is what leads us to the second command, uh, which is given to the people. So they're, they're called to keep their distance from the ark, to watch for the ark, but they're also commanded to consecrate themselves. Now, consecrate is a big word. We don't use it very often. What does it mean? Um, to consecrate something simply means to, to set it aside, to declare it, to dedicate it for holiness. In verse 5, uh, we see verse, the words in verse 5 make it, it makes it, this command sounds as if Joshua gave this command to the people directly. I expect that this was part of the message that the officers brought out. And as they call the people to consecrate themselves, what they're saying is that the people need to respect God and His holiness. That they need to do something to prepare for what they're about to do. They're being commanded here to be like God. To set aside the vulgar, the, the common and to take on godliness for what's about to happen. The law of Moses prescribed uh, certain procedures for the people uh, before they were ever allowed to be in the presence of God. There were certain things they had to abstain from. There were certain things they had to do. But above all, consecrating oneself meant sanctifying one's heart by setting one's love and affection and attention on God. Ritual cleanness is nothing if the heart is polluted by sin and its desires. After all, the, the law is not summed up in a, in, a, in a command to do a bunch of things, but rather it is summed up by the command to love God with all that we are and to love our neighbors as ourselves. While Joshua probably did intend for the people to abide by the cleansing rituals that were commanded in the law of Moses, this command, I think, is at its most fundamental level a call for the people to prepare themselves internally so that they'll be prepared to see and to savor the glory and the power of the living God. 
That purpose is really most apparent in the reason Joshua tells the people to consecrate themselves. He says, consecrate yourselves. Why? For tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. This is preparation in anticipation for experiencing the power and the presence of a holy God. God's holiness distinguishes him from every other thing, every created thing. He is righteous, he is pure, he is good. He has no beginning, he has no end. He stands apart from creation because he, as the creator, transcends it. He's not dependent on creation in any way. And yet his holiness is something that he shares with us. In Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44, God told Israel, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore. There's that same command. And be holy, for I am holy. By issuing this command to the people as they were about to enter the promised land, Joshua is, is drawing the people's minds and hearts to consider this call of holiness that God had already given them. They were unique because God had set them apart from the other nations to be his holy nation, to be a nation of priests in the midst of a broken world. In the same way uh, that the nation of Israel could not have expected to see God's power if they didn't take his holiness seriously, so we cannot expect to know and appreciate the power of God and the way he goes about to deliver his people if we are not struck with fear and reverence for the, his holiness. God is holy, and we are not. If we are to be holy as he is holy, we need someone who can clean us up, who can separate us from sin and from every evil that pollutes us, who can transfer righteousness to us that we are not capable of producing ourselves. So while the Israelites would have consecrated themselves by keeping these rituals that were prescribed in the law of Moses, we know that ultimately those outward acts really couldn't clean up their hearts. So while this command from Joshua draws our attention to beholding the holiness of God, it also makes us consider our need for a great high priest who is able to make us clean inside and out. We need a Savior who can make us holy, and that Savior is Jesus Christ. Paul writes in Romans 3 that the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. He says the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The parting of the Jordan River was truly a glorious display of God's sovereign power. But this great act is really a small thing in comparison to the work that God has done through his son Jesus Christ, whose perfect life and atoning sacrifice has consecrated all who believe in him uh, so that we may see and savor and live in the presence of a holy and almighty God. The call to holiness isn't just a call for the Israelites as they are preparing to enter the land. It's actually a call that God gives to us now. Peter explains, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the second coming. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but, he, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. 
So Joshua prepared the people to receive the inheritance of God's covenant by calling them to be holy as God is holy. That emphasis on the holiness of God brings us to consider another aspect of the Israelites' experience as they entered the promised land, something that they learned, and that is that they came to know God as they lived in his presence. So they came to a knowledge of his presence, is our second point. Now, if you were with us a few weeks ago, you probably remember the promises that God gave to Joshua. What were they? He told him, be strong and courageous. Why? For I am with you. He stressed his presence with Joshua and with the people wherever they went. That theme shows up again here in verse 7, where God tells Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. The crossing of the Jordan River was really only the first step of taking the land. There are many challenges, many obstacles that the people are going to face before they can have peace in this land. The people needed to know that God was with them. And so, just as God had exalted Moses as the leader of the people when he was alive, so now he says he's going to exalt Joshua by going with him. The emphasis of God's encouragement uh, to Joshua is that he's going to be with him. And that's the reason why they're going to succeed in this mission. Now, it's not an accident that this crossing over the Jordan uh, looks so familiar to what God had done 40 years earlier when the people had first come out of the land of Egypt. I hope that as you were reading this, maybe you started to think, man, I've seen this before. There's a lot of details that are, are very close between how God delivered Israel uh, out of the hand of Pharaoh when he destroyed the armies of Egypt and what he's doing here. This generation of Israelites were the descendants of the people who had passed through the Red Sea. And it's significant that as they are about to go and receive these great covenant promises, they're getting to experience God's power in a way that was so similar to what their parents had experienced. Now, the first generation, for all, they, all the wonders that they had seen in Egypt and then in the wilderness, did not remain faithful to God, and so they did not enter the promised land. That's a warning to us. Uh, it's so easy to think, if you're like me, uh, if only I could have seen something like this, it would be so much easier to believe. But the truth is that our hearts are so given to sin, we find sin so attractive that even when we see God work in powerful ways like this, we're still prone to go our own way. So we cannot afford to let our guard down. We have to strive to keep walking in the truth, even as God keeps us. So this, this passage, this event, was a warning, really, to this new generation as they entered the land not to do what their parents did, not to do what their parents, who had seen such a great and mighty act of God, and still rebelled against God. Now, secondly, to this point, uh, the people of Israel had not seen God act through Joshua the way that he, they, that he had worked through Moses. Remember in chapter 1, God affirmed Joshua in the sight of the people. They confirmed him as their leader. But to this point, God's power hadn't been on display in the same way it was in Moses when he was alive, at least not yet. The similarities between the crossing of the Red Sea and the crossing of the Jordan are meant to draw a line of succession between Moses and Joshua that confirmed, in fact, that Joshua was going to be leading the people, that he was God's chosen person. When we get to chapter 4, verse 14, uh, we see that after all of this, the people where we read that the people stood in awe of Joshua, just as they had stood in awe of Moses, the servant of the Lord. 
And we'll get to that next week. Now, third, the similarities between this, this crossing and the crossing of the Red Sea were another warning to the Canaanites about God's holy justice and power. You remember last week when we were in chapter 2, Rahab, as she, she talked about how the men's hearts of the city and the men of the city, their hearts melted within them when they heard of the news of the first crossing. She said, she said that there was no courage to be found in the city. They knew that God was going to give Israel the land. It was that great display of God's power which had shown the glory of God and it had shown that God truly is the God of all the earth. And now it's about to happen again, this time at the Jordan River where the Canaanites wouldn't have to just rely on the reports they had heard of God's power but where they would see it for themselves. This is directly across from Jericho. And something like this wouldn't have gone unnoticed. So if the crossing of the Red Sea had made the the people of Jericho's hearts melt within them, we have to ask, what is this going to do? Wouldn't it have terrified them even more? I think so. And yet, we find that no one from Jericho, besides Rahab and her family, showed any sign of repentance, and none of them sought mercy from God. They still had stone hearts in the face of God's holiness. And so we will see, starting in chapter 6, how God judged them. Now, besides drawing our attention to the way that God was with Joshua and how he was at work in this great and powerful way, Joshua 3 teaches us how God's people find peace and rest in every circumstance in God's presence. We find peace and rest in his presence. While verses 7 through 13 explain God's instructions to the people, the emphasis of these verses is really on God's presence as he was with his people. God tells Joshua that he's going to exalt him, but the way he says that he's going to do that is, is by showing Israel that he is present with him. So, Joshua, as he conveys the message, uh, God's message to the people, says this. He says, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. He says, This is how you will know that God is with you. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. And then in verse 13, he tells them what's going to happen when the ark enters the river. He says, when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, when the soles of their feet shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. Now this is an important waypoint in the history of Israel. And really in, in the whole of God's redemption story. God told Israel that he was with them. He told them that he was with them. But now he wants them to experience the power of his presence so that they would live faithfully and walk before him as his holy people. God wanted them to know the power of his presence and the peace of his presence. God, is, God could have brought Israel over to the Jordan in a thousand different ways. Uh, he could have just stopped the rainfall and made the Jordan River like a small creek that they could have all just hopped over. But then it would have looked like Israel came into the land just by happenstance. God could have brought Israel around the Jordan River, but he didn't do that. No, he wanted to put the power of his presence on display 
in a wonderful way, in a way that would call to mind all of the other ways, all the other times that God had delivered his people. He wanted to show the Israelites a sign so that they would know that he was going to keep his promise to drive these enemy nations out of the land that he was giving them. So God told Joshua that he was with him. And then Joshua tells the people that God is with them to do all of this. And the majority we see of the action in this passage centers on God's commands to these, the priests who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, where when Israel was coming out of Egypt, we see that God told Moses to stretch out his hand over the water. This time it's different. This time, God sends the Ark of the Covenant, the thing that's meant to symbolize God's presence with his people, into the river itself. That's strange. That's different. And he tells the people that when the heels, the bottom of the feet of the priests who were bearing the Ark of the Covenant, rested in the waters of the Jordan, then the flow of the water would be cut off, and they would all be able to pass safely through to receive the promise that he was securing for them. So, like a valiant king at the head of his troops, God here is putting himself at the front of his people and he's leading this charge into Canaan. Those troubled waters were split before him just as they were split before the people of the Red Sea and he held back the fury of the waves until his people reached the other side. Now, I think that this little detail about how God split open the Jordan River and how he brought the people of Israel into the land is one of the most precious parts of this chapter. Most of our discussion this morning has centered on God and his holiness. But look at how now God in his holiness condescends, lowers himself here to be with his people in the midst of an impossible situation to bring them out on the other side to a glorious inheritance. The glory of the holiness of God is lethal to sinners like you and me, and yet in this passage we find the steadfast love of this holy, holy God, the maker of heaven and earth, coming and, and delivering his people by going into the raging waters with them. When Israel crossed over the Jordan River, three, thing, three things were happening. First, God was exalting Joshua as he led the people. Second, God was assuring the people with his presence so they would know that he would in fact give them the land. And finally, the people uh, passing over through the Jordan to take possession of this inheritance, uh, it emphasizes the rest. And there's a beautiful connection here between what God did through Joshua and what God has done through the work of Jesus. One of the things that there's a word here in this chapter and it's the way God describes the way the priests are in the Jordan River. And I don't, it's just a detail I can't, I cannot, I don't even have this in my notes. I can't not let this go by. Did you catch that the priests' feet are resting in the Jordan River? And it's because their feet rest in the Jordan River that the people are able to enter the land of rest. God is securing the inheritance of his people, an inheritance of rest. And we see that when we look especially. There's a series of places we can look at, but I think most importantly, um, do you remember when we were going through the book of Mark? And at the beginning of the book of Mark, we saw Jesus come to John the Baptist, who was baptizing in the Jordan River, the same river that Joshua and the Israelites crossed over to get into the Promised Land. 
And the gospel writers tell us that when Jesus came up to John the Baptist to be baptized, John protested. He would have prevented him, we're told. He said, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And Jesus replied, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Why was Jesus baptized? It was not because he had any sin of his own that he needed to repent for. After all, that's why John was saying, no, Jesus, this, this baptism is not for you. And yet Jesus was baptized because he was showing the extent to which he had come to redeem God's people. He had come to bear their judgment. He had, become, he had come to be one with them. So he was baptized to, because of a, as a symbol of how he was going to put sin and death to death through his atoning death. And he rose again on the third day so that all who believe in him would have eternal life through him. And so we read that God has exalted him as a true and better Joshua who has truly secured the peace of his people through the violence that was done to him. It was Jesus, the Son of God, who took on flesh, who stood in the gap for his people so that we could be exalted with him and so that we could rest in him. Because God made his presence dwell in Christ, we then know that we, if we're joined to him by faith, will dwell with him. And because Jesus stood in the river of death and put death to death on the cross, we have life and we have peace. And so Joshua 3 is more than just about how a bunch of people made it over a creek. Because it wasn't a creek. It was a symbol of what God was doing as he's with his people. When God told Joshua he was going to exalt him and that the Ark of the Covenant, this holy representation of his presence, should go in the river to deliver the people over, he was foreshadowing the work of Jesus who has been exalted for the way he, he broke the current of sin's power and secured salvation for all who believe. It is not an accident that the people were called to consecrate themselves to a holy, to be holy and to follow him as they receive this, this, the inheritance of this covenant of peace. This is what happens when we are joined to Christ through faith and we follow him in baptism. It is a strange thing that Baptist churches speak so infrequently of the significance of baptism. Baptism is a reflection of the relationship that we have with Christ. It is a picture of how we have been joined to him uh, to, in death to sin and have been joined to him in his life to God. And now we have been made holy by the atoning work of his blood. This is, this is the way Paul talks about baptism in Romans 6. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And then Peter explains that baptism corresponds to the deliverance of Noah, which I may, if, if I may, by extension, say that it also corresponds to Joshua and to those who were with him who were delivered safely through the water. He says, it saves you. Baptism saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. The point is this. When God brought the people of Israel into the land of rest, it was a picture of the greater work he was doing through Christ 
who endured the baptism of his death, Luke 12, 50, so that by being joined to him in faith, we would receive true peace in the presence of God for all eternity. This is a glorious passage. This is a waypoint in the history of Israel. This is a waypoint in your faith. Our God is not a God who has abandoned us. He is not a God who sends his people into precarious places while he himself remains in an ivory tower looking on. God is with his people and he has sent his son to secure for us an eternal redemption. And if, as Paul writes in Romans 8.31, God is for us, then who can be against us? We must set our confidence to this, that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things, all of his promises? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For, Paul says, I am sure that neither life, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. Friends, that is our inheritance. And that is the peace, and that is the rest that Joshua couldn't give, but which Christ has. And it's in times like these, when the banks of the river are swollen, that the power of God's presence with his people is most evident. And that leads us to consider our last point of how Israel came to a knowledge of God's deliverance. When you look at the way that Joshua and the people crossed the river, uh, at first this is really pretty strange. God tells Joshua to command the priest to go stand in the Jordan, and it's at this moment when we see the wonder of God's power on display and where Israel comes to to a knowledge of God's deliverance. In verse 15, we see that as the feet of the priest entered the water, something amazing happens. Just as God split the Red Sea, now he splits a flooded Jordan. And amazingly enough, we're told that the waters coming downstream stopped in one heap very far away, all the way at the city of Adam. And that the waters downstream, down to the Dead Sea, the Salt Sea as it's called here, were also completely cut off. This crossing looks in many ways like the Red Sea crossing. After all, we're told that these people crossed over on dry land, but in a way it's even greater because of the way that God splits this river open. It goes for miles. Not just a small path, but the whole river is like it dries up. And while the priests and the Ark of the Covenant stood firmly in the midst of the Jordan, all of Israel crossed over until the entire nation had made it across. The sign that God was with his people looks like something that he's done in the past, except this time it's on an even greater scale. This is a defining moment for Joshua and the people. God, as we've seen, is confirming his covenant promises with this amazing display of power. And while some of the older people in the nation, like Joshua, had experienced the first time God had done something like this, most of the people who were living and who, who, who did this would have only had heard about how God had split the Red Sea. Now they're seeing God's power before them. And God told them that as he did this, that as he did this, that they would know that he truly did have power, not just to to drive away water, but to drive away the enemies that were still in the land. When the nation of Israel crossed over the Jordan, they were leaving behind a legacy of sin and rebellion and death, and they were receiving the choice fruits of God's inheritance. And so they came not just to a knowledge of God's holiness, 
not just to a knowledge of God's presence, but really to a knowledge of the power of God as he is the deliverer of his people. The first generation died in the wilderness. Their bodies fell to the ground and they never entered God's rest. They were left behind because of the rebellion against God. This second generation, as we're going to see, it was not perfect in any way. Uh, they weren't necessarily all that much better than their parents, but at least they trusted God. They believed and God delivered them out of the wilderness where their parents died through these troubled Jordan waters and into the land of rest, the land where God was going to make his presence dwell in a special way, the land where he was going to make them into a nation that was a blessing to the whole world. What a beautiful picture of what God has done in Christ. Water, like what you see in the flooded Jordan, is often accompanied in the Bible with a theme of judgment. God's judgment you remember, came on the earth in the days of, Moma, uh, of, of Noah in the form of a global flood. It, was, it brought destruction. Uh, in other passages, we see that the tossing and the turning of the sea is used as a metaphor to describe the way that sin, uh, the effect that sin has on the world. It creates chaos. It's, it's threatening. When Jesus walked on the water to meet his disciples as a display of his divine power, uh, as we, what we read in Mark, we also saw that it was a picture of how he was the one who was breaking sin and its power, and it was shown on the water. Here we see the raging Jordan River was an obstacle to the people of Israel. They couldn't enter the land until God brought them over. But God showed Israel that he truly is the Lord of all the earth, and he showed them how he was going to deliver them to rest. God stood in the gap. As the feet of the priests came to rest in the river, God shepherded his, shepherded his people across from a land where their parents had died into a land where they would live and have peace with him. Not, and not one of them, we read, was lost. I think that little detail at the end of the chapter is an important one to dwell on. God stood in the gap until the full measure of his people were delivered. It's as if the people passed through him as he bore the judgment they deserved. And so it is with God's people as we receive peace, as we receive the peace of Christ. Paul speaks about this uh, in, in what we read in Colossians 2. He says that in Christ, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. He says, you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made, made without hands by putting off the body of flesh, the body of sin, by circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. He says, God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it, to the cross. Joshua told the people to consecrate themselves because of the wonder they were about to be about to be about to be a part of and about the wonder they were about to see. He told them to prepare themselves to see the power of the living God, the Lord of heaven and of earth, and the people saw the power of God's deliverance. But what they saw and what they experienced is a drop in the bucket compared to the deliverance that Christ has achieved for his people by going to the cross and rising again from the dead. Jesus drank God's, the cup of God's wrath empty. 
He bore the penalty of our sins. He triumphed over sin and death, when he, and then he took up his life again on the third day. The elements we see of God's deliverance in the days of Joshua are only more exponentially exalted in the work of Jesus Christ. Just as God stood in the gap until every one of the people crossed from a land of death into a land of rest, so Christ stands in the gap for all his flock, and he will not lose one. I want to end this morning with two brief applications. First, let us learn to be content as we wait on God. Let us learn to be content as we wait on God. The priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant had to stand in the river until all of God's people had crossed over to safety. Uh, this, this is a point made by the old Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs who writes, he says, Now it was, at God, it was God's disposal that all the people should pass over first, that they should be safe on land, but the priests must stand still until all the people had passed over, and then they must have leave to go. But they must stay till God would have them stay, stay in all that danger. For certainly to reason and sense, there was a great deal of danger in staying. For the text says the people hasted it over. But the priests, they must stay until the people have gone. Stay till God had called them from the place of danger. And so many times it proves that God is pleased to dispose of things so that his ministers must stay longer in danger than the people. Uh, this morning in Brad's devotional, he emphasized that we are all called to a ministry of the gospel. God may not have called us all to vocational ministry, but he has called us all to be ministers of this gospel of reconciliation and to share the truth of the hope that lives within us. And we must remember that. For the time that God has given us on this earth, we have a mission. And so we must wait and we must be diligent with the task that he's pointed to us. The children of God must find their contentment in God, especially in the midst of difficult, threatening circumstances. The story of how God brought Israel over the Jordan River safely to the other side is a lesson to each of us that we are to feel as safe in the midst of the raging river as we are to, as we are to feel when we are on the banks because God is with us to deliver us and he will not lose one of his beloved sheep. The second application I want to conclude with is I just simply want to urge you to trust in the power of our mighty deliverer. Joshua 3 is one of many displays of God's power. And as we see, it looks forward to the perfection of God's power through the deliverance and the work of Jesus Christ. We live in a time of God's patience. God is patient. He is not slow, as some count slowness, but in his mercy he waits. One day this period of waiting will be over, and the awesome holiness of God will break forth on the earth. Christ will come to judge the world and to save his people. One day, the river of God's justice will no longer be restrained. The time of deliverance is now. Now, I, I know that most of us sitting here have believed this gospel, and we cling to Christ as our Savior. But I also know that there's a real possibility. There's always someone here who hasn't really done that. And so I hope you've all been captured with the beauty and the power of God and his love for his people. But that glimpse of the beauty of Jesus will do you no good if you haven't secured yourself in him, to him, by faith. And the way, the way we read about in Colossians 2. So if you have trusted in Jesus, then cling to this story. It is your own. And if you haven't trusted Jesus yet, there is still time. Enter his rest while it remains open. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the way you have so powerfully displayed your 
holiness, your abiding presence, and your deliverance. We thank you, O God, for you are our Savior. You are, you have called us, you have called us your friends. And you have called us to yourself to be your people. And I pray, Father, that you would impress us today with the glory of your holiness, with the power of your presence, and with the strength of your deliverance. And I pray, Father, that as we go out this week, that you would just always remind us of those three things so that you would compel us to speak the good news of the gospel to those around us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.